Welcome to Making Sense of MarTech, an irregular set of conversations with some of the most interesting people in marketing, tech, and advertising. I'm Juan Mendoza. I write the MarTech Weekly Newsletter. It covers important shifts in the industry, and people who work at the largest media tech and marketing companies read it. You can read, listen, and subscribe at themartechweekly.com. Okay, I am with Sabri Subi. He calls himself the Lord of the Internet. He's the founder of King Kong, an Australian-based digital advertising agency. Um, he's also the author of Sell Like Crazy. Now, King Kong has generated more than $1.3 billion in reported revenue for their clients. And it's one of the fastest growing agencies in Australia for year upon year upon year. Um, I've actually haven't met anyone who's hustled as hard as uh, Sabri, so I'm really excited to have him on the show. But in this episode, we're going to be talking about the grind of digital advertising, building a growth mindset, hustle culture. We'll also be talking about um, Sabri's views on performance marketing, the impact that privacy has right now on the um, advertising space, um, and then also why Sabri has golden records in his office. Um, so now I'm really excited to give you Sabri. How are you doing? I'm doing good. That was one hell of an intro. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> Great to have you. Now, I really, really, really am keen to get your story on how you actually started King Kong. Now, I've read some content that says that you had 50 bucks that and your girlfriend, now your wife gave you, and you just jumped on the phones, you started selling. But what did that day look like when you actually decided to start King Kong, the agency? What was that inspiration that actually kicked it off? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> I think that like to rewind a little bit, like I, I got my start in sales and marketing when I was 17 years old. You know, I grew up in a small beach town, Byron Bay, was raised by a single parent mother and got my first real job selling ink cartridges over the telephone. <laughs> and that was like the first experience being on the front lines of capitalism, asking strangers for money. And it was like a cold, hard slap to the face. And I sucked really badly. I was the runt of the litter. I was the worst salesperson there. Um, and I sucked really badly for right, about the first month. And then <clears throat> the, the founder of that business was like, dude, if you don't pick up your game, I'm going to have to get rid of you. Just point blank. I'll give you another week, basically. Um, and something just flicked in me and I changed a different approach to what I was doing and literally overnight became the, the best salesperson. And then I traveled the world selling everything that you could ever imagine. Um, and then ended up back in Australia, went to university, got a marketing degree, dropped out, and then basically started my first business while I was at uni. <clears throat> and that, that took off. And I was like, Hey, like why go back to uni? and learn about this stuff when I've already got a sizable business on my hands. And then I ran a few businesses. I ran a few into the ground. I raised venture capital for a few of them. I sold um, one. And basically they all led me to the position that I was in with King Kong. I went through that whole experience. I hired people internally to do a lot of growth stuff. Um, I tried to hire some agencies and no one would basically have the conversation that I wanted to have, which is like ROI. Like I put how many dollars in and then how many money soldiers return back at the end of the day, right? And no one was willing to do that. And a lot of the businesses that, that I was in, I found like once I cracked the code of customer acquisition, I got a little bit bored with them. 
And then that was when I kind of sat down and I said, look, there's still a huge, huge opportunity to disrupt this agency space. Everyone's avoiding the difficult conversations. No one's trying to solve the biggest problem that all businesses face, which is how do I get more customers? And it was, I was in a period where I had, you know, run a business, I'd run one into the ground and I'd poured a bunch of money into an existing business. And I found myself at, at square one again with no money and basically decided to go back to my roots and started cold calling people. Um, I thought, I don't have any balling buddies. I don't have any rich uncles to start this business. So I have to start it with sweat equity. And I made that decision. And at first I did it just for the money. If I'm being completely honest, it was more about survival at that stage. It wasn't any big picture, like I'm going to go out and conquer the world or anything like that. It was just like, how do I get enough pesos in the bank account to pay rent? <laughs> and I started calling on businesses to basically help them with digital marketing. And after the first you know, two or three days, I got my first client. Um, I was making 150 cold calls a day, getting bruised up on the telephone. And then I kind of just did that for a while. And you know, found myself with a whole bunch of clients working like a dog and said, like, what am I going to do here? Is this going to be the Subri show? Is it going to be a cash flow business <clears throat> or, or are you going to build something bigger than yourself? And I made the decision to build something bigger. Where did the name King Kong come from? Yeah, I thought about when I looked around at the digital marketing space at the time in the agency space, like everyone had these shitty names, right? It was like <laughs> the internet experts and like top rankings and all these generic names that no one would remember. And I thought like, first of all, like I want to create a brand in this category. I don't just want to be some like weird generic thing with stock photos of like consultants in some office somewhere. Um, I wanted to build something a bit more real. Um, and also it's just a play of like, you're never going to forget that your digital marketing agency is named by like, you know, an 800 pound gorilla. And so the first rule of marketing is <clears throat> to zig when everybody's zagging. And that's what I did. I think that's really cool because I, I agree with you. There is where we live in a world of blandness. I mean, seriously, they, they, every agency looks like each other. Every, every SaaS product looks like each other. And that's what I kind of appreciate about King Kong's branding and your unique approach to content. And we'll actually get into that a little bit later in this episode. Uh, but I have a question about your family, um, Sabri. You seem strike me as someone who has been very entrepreneurial from a young age since you were a teenager. Um, you just mentioned that you were selling ink cartridges at 16 years old. But from there, you've built a number of businesses now, but do you come from an entrepreneurial family or like, where does that inspiration come from to start and build businesses? Because I think that's actually quite unique as well. Yeah, look, I think that like, you know, for me, I was raised by a single parent mother, me and my sister. I watched my mom hold down three jobs to, you know, put food on the table and to provide an incredible upbringing for, for me and my sister. And I think that's where firsthand I... I got the appreciation for work ethic, just watching how hard my mom worked. And then I would wake up with her, you know, when I was seven years old and I would, her first job was at a cafe. And then I'd go into the cafe with her and basically help her bring out all the tables and chairs and set them up. She would give me a hot chocolate and send me off to school. Um, and then she would go and do two other jobs and be home and cook me and my sister a healthy meal. And that was where I saw work ethic. And then when I saw my mother struggling like that and doing the job of two parents, I was like, yo, I got to help out. Like I got to, I got to carry my own weight. And I got my first job, like, you know, not a proper job, but a part-time job grinding peanut butter at a health food store for $2.50 an hour. 
<laughs> and I would go do that two days a week and then come home and give her all the money. And I realized very quickly that at $2 and 50 cents an hour, that I was never going to really be able to do much to kind of make a meaningful impact or make her job any easier. Mm. And so I started busking at the Sunday markets with a harmonica and I made $80 in my first Sunday. And I remember coming home and being like, wow, that that's a lot better than $2.50 an hour. <laughs> um, and I gave it to my mom and she was very emotional and she's like, no, darling, you keep it. And I guess that was where I first got bitten by the entrepreneurial bug, I think, is this thinking that you can make something out of nothing. So yeah, it's not like I come from some long lineage of like entrepreneurs and business builders. It was, you know, I saw what a lack of money can do to a household. And I made the decision early on in my life that I was going to get into a place of abundance because there's enough problems in the world. And I believe that money shouldn't be one of them. Yeah, I think, you know, what I find so unique about founders who come from a background where they need to provide for their family, or they come from, like, as you say, you know, you don't have billionaire uncles and or grandfather has got a lot of money, you know, that kind of thing. What I find interesting is that it gives those people a unique, fresh take on an existing industry. Those people seem to want to bet the farm they want to they've got big ideas they've got big ambitions because they're outside of the existing status quo and i think maybe if we switch now into performance marketing and king kong has got this really interesting branding and this positioning as you said before you know you're zigging where everyone's zagging you're um you've got this unique take on um your, your sort of typical advertising agency when i open your website sabri the first thing i read is King Kong is like steroids for business. And then a little bit later down the website, it says King Kong is the most ruthlessly effective platform for rapidly scaling businesses on planet earth. Now that is aggressive language for an advertising agency. And there's this real strong um, viewpoint here, I think, which is, I think, quite unique in that you're there to drive growth for a business, right? Like nothing else, nothing more, nothing less. Grow, let's grow a brand. Let's grow your brand. And you've been able to do that with many companies now. Can you help our listeners unpack your philosophy around growth marketing, performance marketing? I mean, what is it? What's that DNA of the King Kong brand that you're actually driving with your team at the moment? Yeah, I think the beating heart to our business is results and is performance. If you're unable to get results for your clients, then you don't really have a business, right? So the the way that I look at it is, you know, we're centered around solving the number one problem that all businesses face, which is how do I get more customers, right? Most entrepreneurs and business owners are, are, are growth focused. And it's a very complex problem to solve. Turning paid advertising into profit on a business that is unproven is a very, very tall order. It is a very difficult task. It's not like taking a business that is already running on an advertising channel and it's already profitable and then just pouring a little bit of kerosene on that fire. We're talking about being out in the woods with just like rocks and a stick and starting a big raging bonfire, right? And that's a difficult task to do. So ultimately, if you boil it down, you know, performance marketing in my mind is turning $1 into three or four or 10 or a hundred, right? It's about sending money soldiers out into the marketplace and having them return back to camp at the end of the day with more money soldiers kept hostage. And that's what it ultimately comes to. And in a world where, you know, all these 
agencies are 50 shades of beige and they're all saying the same thing in different <laughs> ways. And you've got these brand strategists that just sit, or, sit around burning white sage and circle jerking and talking about like all these esoteric things. It's like as a business owner, like there is a time and place for that conversation, right? However, if you're taking somebody that doesn't have a brand, because most businesses don't, if we're being completely frank, they have a logo and they like to think of it as a brand, but it's not. And, you know, I think about how do we create distribution for this business to get them into a place to earn the right to have a brand. And unless you have a distribution channel where you can spend money to buy eyeballs and then convert those that attention into actual customers, then you don't have a business. You just have a hobby that you're running, right? And it's more so like the business owns you and you don't own the business because there's no reliable, there's no predictability. There's nothing reliable in there where you can go to bed at night and feel sound that you know how much money that you're going to be making in the weeks ahead. Yeah, I think it's an interesting one, right? Like, because you you're talking about distribution, distribution of content, media, distribution of a brand, distribution of product. Um, and one thing that I come up against often, Sabri, is the problem of actually just having a good product, right? Like there's a lot of great companies out there that are selling very mediocre products and they chuck a bunch of ad spend at it and they still don't grow, right? How do you assess that? Like when you say you got a customer sitting across the table from you and they're like, how do we grow this? How do you assess their brand to say, well, there's something in here where you can actually make it quite big? Yeah, it's a great question and it's a very difficult one because if if you're if you're looking at scaling an agency and if you have a look at like what it is that you're in control of, like we're in control of the demand generation, right? We're basically there to put this product out in front of as many people as possible and position it in the most compelling and enticing way that gets the user to do what it is that we want them to do, all the way from an ad on a news feed to them checking out and whipping out their credit card right? Mm. However, you're right. There are a lot of businesses out there that just don't invest the adequate amount of funds into product. And mm. they simply think that people are stupid and that you can just put a message in front of them and they can't open up multiple tabs on Google, do some research, <laughs> read some reviews, look at, do some comparative shopping, find out what's what, and then make an informed decision, right? They're kind of trying to operate the internet oblivious to that is going on. Um, and typically, if you look at where things are at online in terms of performance marketing, the cost of traffic going up, the attribution yeah. hell holes that are happening right now, it's becoming more and more difficult for a company to be profitable on the front end, right? Meaning that their ability to scale a business, it's not just, it can't just be based on the first transaction that that happens, right? Like a business owner, like they make a sale to make some money where a business builder makes a sale to start a relationship. And most people aren't in the relationship game. They are just trying to make quick transactions. And if you have a shit product, then that actually limits you because you get negative word of mouth. You don't have a high repeat purchase rate. Your LTV decreases and you can't maintain a healthy relationship between CAC and LTV. And it just basically, that growth cycle just stops, right? Mm -hmm. 
but mm. it's impossible to be able to really vet that with new businesses that don't have a long line of ad spend and reoccurring revenue and they have the, the proper metrics in place and measurement in place to actually know what the repeat purchase rate is. What is the AOV? What's the LTV? Yeah, I... I think that there's a, like a really interesting dichotomy here, right? Like, so you're saying, okay, well, um, you, you're you in the, the role, you play the role with many companies on how do you scale the thing that's already working in your company? So let's say you've got five products, four of them are duds, but one's really going well. Your job is to take that, scale it, and make sure that you're getting as many eyeballs on it that drives conversions, leads, you know, and then repeat purchases down the track. And I think that, you know, what you said um, just before is right. You know, a shipped product doesn't mean uh, you can still try and sell it, but eventually it's not going to lead to growth, right? In terms of that repeat purchase or that existing relationship or that word of mouth. And so I often see a lot of ad agencies go down the path of the front of the door, right? Like, hey, you know, let's get customers in the house, but not many ad performance agencies looking at how do you actually keep those customers happy and turn them into raving fans. Uh, how do you approach that? Because I, I, from what I've seen from King Kong, it's you guys look at the holistic customer journey here in terms of their whole the holistic relationship and how uh, brands continue to add value and um, drive growth. What does that tend to look like outside of, say, pay-per-click advertising? Yeah, so the thing that we really do is that, like most businesses, if you look at them, I've kind of started by the practitioner, right? They're, they're started by the tech entrepreneur who's basically creating a product to scratch his own itch. It's started by the chef who then starts a catering <laughs> business, right? The carpenter that be then becomes a builder. So what I'm getting at is that none of these people really have the pedigree to run a business. They haven't gone anywhere and been taught any of these things. So the very first thing that we do is we try to ground the clients in the unit economics to basically grow their business and show them what those KPIs are at every, at every step of the journey, right? Mm -hmm. So we tell them like, how much you should be spending, what percentage of the LTV should be spent to acquire a customer on the front end, what the repeat purchase should be, right? If your first AOV is this much, that's what your profit contribution is from day one AOV. This is what it should look like from an LTV perspective. This is how many times that people should be buying the products. This is how many people should be leaving reviews. And so we can basically show them like, these are the things that we're going to be held accountable for. And if we don't deliver what we say that we're going to deliver, then we will not get paid, right? You'll mm. stop paying us and we will continue to work for free until we deliver the promise that we said. And we're going to be held to the fire for these things, right? <laughs> but if your product doesn't do what it says it would do, mm. then you're going to be held to the fire for those things, right? Because we're not in charge of the product. Is We're running an in, yeah. like, you know, an app install campaign mm. and you don't have any product activation or people do the 14-day free trial and then no one moves to the paid then that's, that's a product problem. It's not a marketing problem, right? Mm -hmm. So like, what is it that you're doing to make that product sticky, to get people wanting to use it, to then fund that other stuff, right? And so that's where we will come in to the client and say like, what does the upsell path look like? What does the emails that go out after their first purchase look like? And start to move into a place where we're trying to make that LTV as large as we possibly can. And we're trying to optimize their 30-day ROAS to be as high as they possibly can to liquidate as much as the advertising costs and our retainers as possible to make that client as profitable moving into the long term. 
Yeah. I mean, I 100% agree with you, Sabri, that most people have a business, but they don't operate a business. I mean, yeah, no, I have many, it's funny that you mentioned actually the chef who starts a catering business. I actually started a catering business. I was 12 years ago or something. And that was my first real company. And I remember I had no idea what I was doing. I was like, oh, you know, here's a, you know, hundred person catering event. Okay. That's great. Cool. we got some money now. What do we do with the money? <laughs> How do we grow this tiny little business? And I was just scratching my head at that stage. Um, and I can imagine a lot of uh, small to medium business owners uh, thinking the same way. I mean, there's uh, the business acumen of actually understanding how to grow a brand. It's the understanding of metrics and how you collect those metrics and how much you actually trust those metrics. And we'll talk about privacy and what it's doing to measurement and, um, and tracking at, in the um, ad space in a little bit. But I think one of the biggest problems, Sabri, in uh, particularly in small to medium business marketing is creativity. I mean, coming up with great, compelling, attractive, informative, helpful content is actually really hard for a small company. Um, and when I look at a brand like King Kong or the book, uh, your recent book, Sell Like Crazy, you have got such a unique approach to content and messaging. Uh, I've never seen landing pages like the ones that you put out, uh, which is like the really long form text, very conversational. Never seen that before in an agency. I've never seen an agency owner burn a, a what is it, a United States $1 bill um, on YouTube. Is that illegal, Sabri, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> if, if you read the comment section, you'll find out very quickly. No, but there's, there's a, like, it's, of course it's dummy money. It's not real money. Oh, it's not uh, real. Okay. Yeah, everyone's like, you're going to be arrested. It's like, no, I'm not bro. Just chill. All right. <laughs> but I think you've put a lot of effort into standing out and I want you to take our listeners into what does an ideation session look like with you and your team? Like, how do you come up with these ideas that obviously get those kinds of YouTube comments and, um, and creates this really differentiated, unique type of brand in the industry. Yeah. Well, I'm actually just going through that process with my, with my team at the moment, and we're planning our, our next outrageous campaign. But I think that you need to first be plugged into internet culture mm. and to kind of know what's going on online and, you know, most people, they think that they know what's going on and they do within their own industry or their own category. And they think that that is the sector of the internet that they compete with, where that is a fallacy, right? You're competing with every other alternative that exists for your prospect's attention on the internet. So the half-naked supermodels on Instagram, you know, the Elon Musk carrying a sink into the Twitter headquarters, <laughs> the Joe Rogan smoking weed, the UFC events, like, all the other crazy stuff that's going on in the world that is what is you're you're in the big kind of hunger games for attention and you're competing with and only once you assess that and realistically look at your business and your messaging and think man like what i've got is no way near as entertaining as all the other alternatives that exist then you start to look at things through a, through a different lens right and, you know, we're in the day and age where attention is the currency of the world, right? You look at, you know, the like the Kardashians, whether you like them or hate them, they're, they're doing billions of revenue with like 13 people teams, right? Purely off their ability to get attention and then flip it. Elon knows what game he's in. He's a master at getting attention. Kanye, all of these people that there is so much chatter constantly about, and look at the size of the businesses that they have off, they have built off the back of that attention. 
So that's the first premise is understanding that is what you're competing with. You're not competing with Joe Blow down the street in the same category as you. And then thinking about like, how do I engage or interrupt this, this news feed, this scroll, and to, to basically break through in this incredibly chaotic environment that exists where there's all of these notifications, endless apps open, all this world going on and thinking about like, how do I push this to the edges of the extreme fringe to then stand out and get attention? It's a funny perspective, I think, because you're right in that saying that most brands think of themselves competing with other companies in their category, but on the web, it's totally flattened. Um, you're competing for attention against everything else that's on the screen. And so in that worldview, you're thinking through, okay, well, how do I drive as much attention to what I'm doing as possible? Which does lead, I think, to a, can lead to a pretty dark road, uh, if I can be honest. I mean, there's some great content that I've uh, recently featured in the MarTech Weekly talking about influencer culture, um, influencers who do, you know, really harmful things to garner attention. Um, one is a, a young guy who, did um the uh i forget what it's called it's the korean eat in front of youtube thing where they buy a meal and they eat it and then okay. he, and he and he kept and his audience kept agging him on to do more extreme meals over time and then he became very overweight and very unhealthy you know that's just one example right like we're all screaming and clawing at attention right and there's a part in that which says well yes to build a brand you need to compete and participate but what are the negative externalities that are forming that as well? I mean, you know, we're never so addicted to our smartphones. I don't know if you have TikTok, but when I gave it a go, I felt like I, I was in a vortex of endless content scrolling. And so you've got this really adversarial situation where you've got the ad networks and the social media platforms that are wanting us to spend as much time as possible because they're monetizing that attention. We've got ad agencies that are monetizing their clients uh, to actually harness that attention into conversions and sales and dollars. and But then you've got the users that I'm not super sold on whether or not they're better off at the end of the day. It's, it seems to me like social media is becoming more adversarial, gaming people for attention instead of driving quality content. But did you have any comments on that? I mean, you must think through, um, particularly with content and messaging, the sort of the ethical implications of competing for attention on the web. Yeah. So the mental model that I run it through is what is the transformation that I am going to be giving somebody that goes through the ultimate journey. Right. And so like, if, if I have a look at, you know, you know, my own advertising, the things that I, I do within my own business, whether it's my book or whatnot, right. Like I know that if I can get my hands, my book into the hands of somebody and they're struggling in their business that I literally give them the step-by-step -step playbook of exactly what it is that they need to do to go out there and solve that problem. And I know the stresses of not having money. I have seen firsthand the pressure that, that puts on a family. And, you know, today I have received countless handwritten letters, you know, we're at 6,000 reviews of people and that, that have said that this book has physically changed their life, right? Mm -hmm. So me being out on the internet holding a shit emoji or burning money <laughs> is a very small price to pay mm. to give somebody that transformation. But if I was, for instance, like selling vape or doing something like that, 
then I wouldn't do that. Because first of all, like we don't take on things that are questionable within our agency. There, there are definitely moral boundaries that we will not cross. So I ultimately think is like, is the product that I'm selling going to have a meaningful impact on that person's life? And then I believe that once I answer yes to that, then it is my moral obligation to get that into the hands of as many people as I possibly can. And if that means doing outrageous things on the internet to interrupt people's pattern that are like sleepwalking zombies online, getting a feed and a dopamine hit on the newsfeed, getting a feed on the newsfeed, then so be it. That is that is a price that I am willing to pay. Yeah, it's a, it's a brave new world. I mean, you know, I remember when the iPhone came out and I, I bought the 3GS back in the day. Wow, that was a great phone. But the iPhone, I remember the, the utility of it was so powerful. Um, but now I think most people don't actually use their iPhones for utility. They've, they're on social media, they're scrolling They're As you say, they're getting their feed from the newsfeed. They're, they're zombified in a lot of ways, but I kind of agree with you that it doesn't need to be zero sum, right? You can deliver great, great experiences for customers and put fantastic products in front of them or make them aware of, of a solution to a potential problem that they have. And that's actually a, a good thing, right? Connecting customers with great products and services is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But it's also participating in that ecosystem, which is also a bit fraught. But I, I want to talk a little bit more and perhaps switch into an adjacent topic here about hustle culture, hustle culture. So Gary V, Stephen Bartlett, you know, there's these mega influencers, right? And we were just talking about attention. Those guys are driving so much attention, right, to themselves. Like, I'm not sure if you saw Gary V's NFT project. It's probably one of the most successful <laughs> NFT projects out there, despite a lot of competition. But, you know, Gary V has, has spent a lot, a lot of time creating a mountain of content, talking about his unique approach to business, his hustle and grind culture, you know, working a lot, working six days, seven days a week, you know, working late nights and evenings and overnight and all that stuff. And so you've got this sort of this influential force on the web that is telling young people, young women, men and women that hustling and grinding, which usually is some form of growth mindset, willingness to work and put in the hours and have a big audacious vision, you know, that that is a good thing, right? And a lot of that is actually really good. But I think actually I was reading about you page on King Kong and it was saying, oh, it says this actually it says, my name's Sabri Subri. Five short years ago, I was dead broke. I had just started my business from rented bedroom with no more than $50 on old computer. I was desperately searching for clients and practically begging people just to speak with me. I would wake up early every morning before the sun rose and made 150 cold calls per day, mostly to people that would simply tell me to go away and hang up on me. I did this six days per week for months on end, grinding it out and quote unquote hustling. Now, What's your view on hustle culture? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? You know, are the people like Gary Vee influencing people down a good path or a bad path? Like, how do you see that? Yeah, I think that like anything, if you take it to the extreme, yeah. it can obviously have a, a, a negative consequence. Um, but I think by and large, you know, one thing that I uh, I learned earlier on in my career is that people don't want to make money. They want to have money. 
right? And like the, the the thing that I could always control was the amount of effort that I put in, right? Mm. I couldn't control that I maybe came from a less privileged upbringing, but still a lot more privileged than a lot of people. Mm. I couldn't change, I couldn't change, you know, how well funded my competitors were if they did things that were morally questionable. Um, if team members decided to leave me and steal clients or whatever, all, all, all of those things, right? But the one thing that I could control was the amount of effort that I put into it, right? And I don't think that championing hard work is is a bad thing. Of course, you need to have balance. You need to have all of those things. But if anything, I would say that it has gone too far in the other direction of things being too easy for people, right? You know, you and I are probably the same age. When we were growing <laughs> up, you know, people couldn't just bring out their phone and have food delivered to their house. Then they couldn't use that same phone to go find somebody to go and meet on a date and then use that same phone to book a car that would then come and pick them up to take them for that date when then they could use that same phone to order food and then get dropped back and everything is just within the hand's reach, right? Not a lot of adversity in that situation right there. We're, we're in you know, a culture and a time and place in history where technology has enabled so much and it has removed so many of the inconveniences in life and is really breeding a culture of people that are not akin to going through a lot of adversity. You know, adversity to a lot of people is them not receiving enough likes on an Instagram post. And then, <laughs> and then them getting a certain level of anxiety about how they feel about themselves, right? Where I think that, you know, preaching that like, look, if you want anything in life, you're going to have to roll up your sleeves and you're going to have to go out and make it happen. And there's no one else to blame other than yourself. It's not your age, your race, your ethnicity, your upbringing, because history has proven time and time again that some of the most successful people, quote unquote, successful in the eyes of society, have come from those upbringings or from those backgrounds or, or have experienced atrocious acts done to them, right? in their childhood and and yet despite of all of those things have still been able to manage quote unquote get themselves into a position of being successful and the one thing that is consistent amongst all of those people is the value of hard work right you, you it's i have never met anybody that says that they have not had lots of failure and a lot of grinding along the way to get to where they are other than the crypto bros <laughs> Maybe we can touch up on the crypto bros because a lot of news uh, recently uh, around the collapse of crypto. But, you know, it's it's funny how you say that, you know, working hard, grinding it out, putting in the hard yards is a correlation to success. Um, but I actually think that the correlation to success is actually play. I mean, nobody asked you, Sabri, to start King Kong. Nobody asked you to do that. You went out and did it yourself. You thought, this needs to exist in the world. I see a problem. But I am sure, I am 100% confident of this fact, that you have a raging fun time with your team. I mean, I can see in that office with King Kong, with your team, when you're writing books, when you're ideating for your next brand campaign, you're having a ton of fun. Am I right or am I wrong? Yes. Yeah. And so for a lot of people looking outside, they think, wow, Sabri's working so hard, right? 
or Gary Vee's working so hard. I get a lot of feedback from my listeners saying, how do you do like expert analysis every single Sunday? And my feedback, and I think you probably agree with me, is that it's fun. It's really fun. I enjoy doing it. Um, I have two young kids, a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and they just play, they create stories, they draw, they do all kinds of stuff all day. And nobody asks them to do that. They just want to create. And I think that's part of this is that I think hustle culture is quite toxic when it's really focused on revenue and money. Because I think for a lot of people, they'll follow that path to say, if I work hard, hustle, build a product, start an agency, whatever it is, for money only, it's a road that doesn't lead to anything meaningful. But if you take the other path and go, well, I'm trying to build something here that's valuable to others to genuinely serve somebody else and to create value for them. And I love doing that thing. I think that's probably going to lead to more longer term outcomes. I can't tell you how many people I've, I've run into in my life, um, Sabri, who've started a company and all they want to do is make a lot of money, but they don't stay the path. They don't stay the course. And I think one of the most impressive things about King Kong is that you've stayed the course. You've built this company and it has actually continued to grow year after year um, because I my hypothesis is that you just have a lot of fun. What are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, look, I, I, I think that they're two very different questions. I think that realistically, you know, if you're looking at somebody that starts something purely for for money, that those things typically don't end up well, right? And, you know, to, to quote Naval, like Naval has a quote where it's like, you know, you basically want to engage in work that for others, it looks like work, but for you, it feels like play. And I agree with the sentiment of that quote. Um, however, also on the flip side of that, while you and I, you know, both have a great time, I would also bet that there are days where it, there are difficult things that happen to you. And in that time, it does not feel like play. You're thinking, I've got this massive hairy problem that I've got to solve. I've got to sort this out. And there are the stressful days, the sleepless nights, the sacrifice, the time away from your children, all of those things that go into it, right? So to say that it's just play and it should always feel like play is also, I believe, misleading for the listeners. Mm -hmm. And that like, I'm 100% and I agree with you. Like, I love what I do. Mm -hmm. And and to me, 80% of the time, it does feel like play. And it is the thing that I would do regardless of whether or not I get paid to do it, right? But that's not enough, right? Because I get paid for getting up and doing it when I do not feel like doing it, <laughs> right? That's what the difference between a pro is and an amateur. Yeah, it's yeah. the person that gets up and does the performance, go and plays the NBA game, walks into the octagon when they don't feel like doing it. And they show up and they get it done. Yeah. So I, I I do agree with you that, yeah. you know, if you start a business from a place where your sole focus is to make money, it very, it very rarely pans out in the way that you want to do. Because you, you have to be in love with what you do to withstand the gale forced winds and the hot fires that you need to bathe in to continue to, to go through those hard times. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that if you're just trying to have fun, you probably have a hobby more than a business. Uh, I agree with that sentiment that when the hard times come with most businesses, you know, right now we're what we're we looking towards a recession, perhaps, you know, a lot of question marks around that. 
And so there's a lot of businesses, I think just some state stats out of the US, it says that I think 35% of small businesses in the US can't afford, didn't weren't able to afford rent last week, last month. There's a lot of businesses going through a tough time right now. And so it's not all fun and games. I agree with that. But, you know, uh, talking about Naval and obviously very influential person over at AngelList there, uh, he's a VC investor out of Silicon Valley. He talks about you play, you want to play a status game or you want to play a wealth creation game, you know? So you're building a business to have status, right? Like are you doing the keynote presentations or the media stuff or are you building a big company to have status so that people respect you? Is that what you want to do? Or you want to try and create something with wealth, right? Like you want to build revenue, build, create a lot of money, right? And he says he creates this dichotomy of like wealth versus status. And I actually think the missing piece there, and maybe this is the puzzle piece that we're talking about, is that it's not just fun. It's not just hustle for money. The thing in between is virtue. Uh, the thing in between is actually the purpose behind all this stuff, the vision, right? Like you mentioned before with King Kong, that the vision is you're growing your business using this formulaic strategy around advertising and growth and content and marketing. Awesome. You want to bring that into the world, right? So that's that purpose that keeps you perhaps come <laughs> waking up in the morning when you don't feel like going into work, actually going into work, you know? So I, I think the missing piece there is that, you know, for young people wanting to get into this industry, it's not just about money. It's not just about status. It's also about virtue. Like what is the big problem? Like have a big audacious problem that you want to solve that you you that is real to you and that you find valuable. And so, yeah, I think it's, a, it's fascinating. I mean, when you start unpicking people's motivations, it's really quite interesting to think about like what is actually driving this. And in my experience, people who try just to earn a lot of money, they really quickly tend to flame out, you know, and then move on to something else. But let's shift gears a little bit here and talk about privacy. Now, a lot of changes in the online space right now in terms of advertising and tracking and analytics We've got government regulation that's limiting data across data collection and use across all different parts of the world. You've got GDPR that's that's only ramping up in terms of the amount of fines that are sent to companies for violating privacy rules online. You've got the CCPA in California that is they are now actively fining consumer brands like Sephora for breaching data privacy rules. You've got third-party cookie deprecation, which is the cookie that tracks you across different websites. That's being deprecated by Google, which is the biggest, most popular browser out there in the web. You've got big tech making fundamental changes to tracking like Apple's Apple tracking transparency, along with consumer sentiment in Australia. It's actually changing a lot right now. A lot of young people are quite concerned about privacy and their online privacy and, and what data is being collected about them. So with all of that big picture, Sabri, how do you actually navigate all that stuff? Given that a lot of your business is, is, is driving, obviously, targeted advertising, like what are you thinking about? How are you addressing all these shifts right now? Yeah, I think that, you know, realistically, at the pace that things are changing, it's a, a, at a dizzying pace that, you know, it's impossible to keep up on all fronts at the same time. So instead of really thinking about, like, what's going to change over the next three to five years... I like to spend a disproportionate amount of my time and energy focusing on what's not going to change, i.e. The, the human psychology piece and how humans, you know, interact with things online. There's no question that good old Mr. Cook over at Apple has thrown a spanner in the works in terms of tracking and attribution. <laughs> and one morning woke up and he was like, privacy, 
I'm going to start sticking the word privacy on billboards everywhere in Silicon Valley because I have such a righteous path and I really need to fight the good fight, right? Yet his ad business has been exploding and you could argue that, you know, Apple, the information that Apple collect is probably the most intrusive out of any other tech company that exists. If you go into significant places on your on your iPhone, I think most people would be mortified with the level of details that are automatically by default set on with the iPhone, where if they were so bullish on privacy, they would all be turned off by default. So by the same sword that they like to cut other companies, they are very comfortable to keep that in their sheath and use that when they need to. So I I, I realistically like to not focus on what ifs and then this and then that and whatnot. You know, you, you mentioned about young people being concerned with their privacy. Like, it depends on where you're reading that information, right? I like to look at people's actions and draw conclusions from those. And we've never lived in a day and age where people are sharing more information about themselves than ever before. Like there's a saying in like Silicon Valley and in the tech world, it's like, if you want to look, um, you know, for S curves in growth, you basically bet on people sharing more about themselves than they ever have before right? Um, and it started with MySpace with a basic profile and a basic, a few images. And then, you know, it basically moved to Facebook where there was a little bit more of that, but it was within schools. And then you got Instagram where it was like people posting images of themselves and their family constantly, right? And then stories. And now you've got TikTok where it's like actual videos of people continuously sharing. So I think if you look at the rate that people are comfortable with putting out there into the public. It shows a very different story about people being concerned about privacy um, because if they, they were so private, then they wouldn't be posting two to three pictures out, having an un, uh, <laughs> having a public profile on Instagram that anyone can see and then being concerned about privacy, right? So let's just be real about that. Um, and then I think in terms of the tracking piece, it's definitely a challenge. Um, and I think that you know, the, the, the years to come will show like, you know, the rollout of GA4 and looking at what that does, that does give you like, you know, it doesn't tie it down to the individual. So it's not personally identifiable information, but you're getting more rich data than you previously were with normal Google analytics. Um, I believe that if you, you know, I always follow the money, right. And it's like Cubono, to whom would benefit? So when someone makes that decision about, you know, evangelizing privacy, to whom is going to benefit from that, right? So if you have a look and you follow the money in that instance and you have a look at, at Apple's own ad business and how that has exploded since the rollout of iOS 14.5, it's very clear to follow what the money is. And on the same side of that, I like to think of like, okay, Google, 98% of their revenue comes from ads. Um, Facebook, right? All of their revenue comes from ads. These companies employ the brightest engineers on planet earth right <laughs> and there is so much at stake right so do you really think that these ad platforms are just going to let those billions the 221 billion in revenue that google did last year are they going to let that vanish are they you know going to kill their own advertising business right? No, they're not, right? In all reality, the AI with GA4 and all the different inputs that are coming, it's getting even more effective at buying media, right? Than it has in previous time. So I, I, I sleep sound at night knowing <laughs> that the money 
lies in the hands of these companies that have the, the sharpest engineers on planet earth working to solve this problem. I mean, it's, it's funny. I mean, I'm not sure if you caught just recently, Zuckerberg just had to let go of um, 11,000 staff after burning through, I think, $15 billion over the past year and a half to build his metaverse ambitions. I mean, you know, right now, the big ad tech networks, Facebook, Google, et cetera, they're going through a bit of a reckoning, I think. I mean, you know, uh, I don't think I've seen Facebook stock as low as it is. You've got activist investors um, like Atlia saying, yeah, Zuckerberg really needs to wind down his metaverse ambitions to, because his, his core advertising business is struggling. But, you know, you, you mentioned actions, right? Not just words, right? So on the one side, You've got, say, like Pure Research did a, a privacy and advertising study. I think six out of 10 people said that online tracking is unavoidable. 79% of them said that online tracking is, is a concern to them and that they're worried about what's being collected. Now, that's just words, right? And I agree with you. Follow what people are doing. But if you look at Apple tracking transparency, in 2021, 96% of users clicked not to be tracked when they when they download an app and they get that prompt to say ask app to track me or not all those users are ask, asking not to be tracked another interesting one is duckduckgo which is a privacy focused search, search engine right ad so blocker yeah it's an ad blocker etc right so you know they're getting 100 million daily users queries sorry not users queries at the moment so they're growing a lot as well because of their strong value proposition around privacy so people are like, I, I get that, like people are still sharing a lot of intimate details about their life. And that is a really good point. But I also think that we don't have, like the web exists today because of people like you, Sabri, that run ads. You know, like The Lord platforms. of the internet. It is a title <laughs> yeah. given to me by the internet people. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's the thing. Like ad tech is what brought us these free services for like, it's literally unlocked billions of dollars of real value for people building companies, starting companies, getting a job. I mean, all of those things are facilitated through the web and all of that is underpinned by advertising. So I don't see a future where ads are going away. No way am I saying that. All I'm saying here is that, I mean, how do you keep that promise with your customers that says, we'll keep working for you for free until we get performance when that's becoming more and costly and harder to do? I mean, that's the challenge here. And uh, you must have to be more creative with content. But are there other areas of growth opportunities with brands you're working with right now outside of pure play, um, pay PPC um, advertising? Yeah, look, I'll, I'll come back to that in, yeah. in a moment to, to kind of, expand out on the point, you know, about Zucks and him, him letting go of 11,000 staff and all of that kind of stuff. Like, I think yeah. again, it's like, it's easy to read those headlines. Like these big, like tech darlings, they, they love like journalists love to give them a lot of flack. Right. So yeah. if we actually look at the numbers, like 2020, Facebook had 48,000 employees, mm. right. They aggressively ramped up to just shy of 90,000 employees. Mm. By 2022. Now, everyone in Silicon Valley right now is culling the 10% bottom of, of their, their, their team. It's just happening, right? There was yeah. an overexpansion. Everyone got silly. They threw out silly money. <laughs> and, and, and now it's like the economy's cooled off and it's forcing mm. people to rein in a little bit, right? So mm. the first piece is even at 11,000 employees, it's terrible. I feel very bad for those people, but yeah. in, it's in line with what the other tech companies are letting off, 10%. Right. Mm -hmm. A little bit more than that. Um, so there's that piece of it. 
and just understanding the context of of that and where that sits in. And then in terms of investors and him burning money and and, pay, and playing big bets, like he's sitting on a surplus of cash, like a war chest of capital. And you have to deploy that capital and mm -hmm. continuously look to skate where the puck is going rather than where it is right now. Is it going to pay off? Nobody knows. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, but, but I do know that when he said we're going all in on mobile and we're going to make Facebook mm. a mobile only platform, the same critics laughed at him, right? And now 80% of their users the daily active users and ads, all, all the ads been comes from mobile, right? So it's, it's, it's always very difficult to pick it now. And I think that that's a very long game that he's going to play. And we will see where that ends up in, 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 in three to five years. I'll just interject there and say, I do respect the man because it's very hard to turn a business into a completely new vertical, like what was it? Almost 90,000 employees. That's really hard to do. I mean, he's done it once with mobile, much smaller team back then, but he's got this thing, which is kind of similar to Elon in a lot of ways, where he's very keen on the challenge, right? And he's happy to bet the farm on something he really believes in. And I respect that. I mean, yeah, you've got to really believe in and double down on what you think the future might be, right? And work towards it. And you otherwise, kind of see that he's just, yeah. otherwise, he's just going to get put yeah. out of business by somebody else. Yes. Because by definition, all profit comes from risk. And that's why these big incumbent agencies end up getting disrupted by disruptive brands is because they have basically lost their ability to be able to play risk because they're, they're basically operating for next quarter's earnings and, 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 and paying a popularity contest. So I think that's where, where that's going. So in terms of the, the, the tracking piece and, and, and yeah. how that works and how to solve that yes it's definitely becoming you know more of a challenge in in looking at the attribution however there are technologies that exist out there you know i won't i'm not endorsed by any of them so i'm not going <laughs> to give them any endorsements just waiting for that endorsement check baby oh um, yeah um but there are platforms out there that really close the loop and solve this whole you know, issue with tracking um, and not just relying on cookies or conversion pixels, but, you know, placing digital fingerprints on people and using email, IPs, fingerprints, cookies, mm. and the whole gamut of things to kind of solve that conversion piece. Mm. So that's what, that's what we look at. And we're obviously relying on assisted conversions through Google analytics as well, and looking at those measures and those things that are in place. Mm. Um, so I think that our job to answer you will get more difficult over time, but I do as also feel confident in relying off the ability of these massive companies to be able to solve that. And I think that while we have this decay in tracking, like we discussed on the other end of that as well, we also have these algorithms, whether it be on Facebook or Google with like Google's performance max campaigns um, or Google just basically, I mean, on Facebook, just noticing that no targeting at all and giving the algorithm free reign is getting you even better results mm -hmm. where it's kind of like we're getting so much improvement on the media buying side, but then we're getting the decay in tracking. And I think that where we stand right now, they kind of balance each other out a little bit. If anything, we're in a little bit worse off position than we were, you know, two years ago. But I'm confident that, you know, over the year to come ahead, that a lot of that stuff is going to be kind of navigated and worked through. 
I hope so, Sabri. I definitely hope so because right now it is a chaotic situation in drafting. So as you mentioned, there's so much happening. You know, you've got cookie replacements like Lodomay's ID5. You've got a whole bunch of different sort of contextual advertising pathways that our publishers are doing now. And you've also got first-party data, which basically just means collecting email addresses, <laughs> if I could be completely honest, right? And actually collecting preferential data through that. And, um, you know, it's it's a chaotic time for marketers. I mean, most marketers I'm talking like, I don't even know how to start with this stuff. You know, so I'm glad that, uh, that you're keeping your finger on the pulse and helping your customers navigate it because, yeah, it is challenging. I mean, attribution is becoming harder and harder. But my controversial take on the attribution things is that I actually think attribution is not possible at all in the, in a really real sense that um, predicting or understanding the causation of something that you did in market to a purchase is extremely hard to do at scale, right? You can sit down with one customer and ask them, hey, what was this thing that motivated you to buy this? And what were those different touch points? Great. But when you try and aggregate it and try and do it at scale, it becomes very hard because you know what, Sabri? People are chaotic. People are unpredictable. People don't do things for all kinds of random reasons. You know, I look at my kids and I'm like, oh my God, they do some random weird things sometimes. And that's just like the rest of us. And so there's a real philosophical challenge with that in the first place, which I think markers are waking up to and saying, how much can we actually trust the data that's in front of us? You know, <laughs> like I'm looking at Google Analytics report. How much can I actually trust here? And I think that it's a good question to ask. I think there's some fantastic startups, as you mentioned, that are working on this. I think the advent of AI and analytics is a really important one because that helps to sort of give you the kind of number crunching you need to obviously see where that, that performance is going and where you should invest. But it's a fascinating conversation. We could keep going all day about this one, but we need to talk about your book, Sabri, Sell Like Crazy. From what I gather, it's a selling system that helps you grow, that, that actually helped you grow the King Kong agency. And then you're giving that to your audience. One reviewer said it's possibly, quote, the most controversial mark marketing and sales book for the general public ever written. What's so controversial about it? I think that it kind of just pulls back all the bullshit, to be honest, <laughs> that, that's, that's out there. And it just is, it, it is a straight shooting guide and it goes against a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that's kind of peddled by a lot of people out there that have kind of some other vested interest in it. Um, and I try and, you know, I was very conscious when I wrote the book that I didn't want it to be like a business card and I didn't want it to be like something to get me keynote speeches. I don't give keynote speeches. So that's really? not what the motive is. Right. Do you like speaking? Like, yeah, yeah. I don't mind it, but it's just not yeah. a good return on my time. Um, yeah, but, okay. but I, you know, the first thing that one would think is, oh, this is just going to be like some thinly veiled sales pitch to get me into his agency or to sell some other thing to me. Right. And realistically, the reason that I wrote this book is that there is only a subset of the total number of businesses that exist that will ever have the funds to be able to hire my agency or that I will ever be able to help. And I constantly ran up against the thing of, Hey, like you guys are too expensive. I don't have the funds to work with you. Who else would you recommend that I would work with? That is like the no frills version of King Kong. Right. And I just saw like people murdering their money. And like, instead of stopping sending people to like the numbskulls that are rampant in the advertising industry, um, I thought like, look, 
I will just write a book and I will t basically uh, no holds barred everything that I know into this book with exactly what I would tell my daughters to do if they were starting to run a business um, long after I am gone. This is the framework. <laughs> this is what you should run with. And then I basically put that out in there. There's, there's no pitch in the book to do anything else. It's just a way for me to send the elevator back down to people and help them out where I am. It doesn't cost me any more to be able to put out marketing material that is a value that actually transforms people's lives. And of course, there is a subset of the people that read that book and think, hey, this guy really knows what he's talking about. How about I just go and hire his agency to do this, right? But that also, for every one of those people, there are thousands of people that get the book and just use it themselves and go out and change their business. Interesting, right? So it's a really practical tool to take what you've learned and what you do with your customers and then help pay a, play a role, I guess, in the education piece for business owners to go, yeah, now I know, perhaps I don't know how to do this myself, but I know the kind of questions I need to ask for the next agency or the next person that helps in my marketing. So it's about upskilling, giving the right mental models. I can see there's a lot of frameworks in there as well. Um, yeah, it's even fascinating. It's, yeah. it's even it's even more than than yeah. that piece of it. I even go into like it's not like a hey, this is what you should think about. It's more mm. like a hey, this is what you should do. So yeah, I was yeah. I, I was very conscious of that as well. I didn't want to just put out some fr fluffy piece of marketing that's like you just got to put out more value, bro, and you're gonna have <laughs> this money rain down on you. Um, I wanted it to be a little bit more grassroots in the trenches. Yeah, very practical, very practical. That's that's wonderful. Now, I've got a few more bonus questions. I want to know who are the three people that inspire you, Sabri? Who are the three people in this industry that you work in that really inspire you? Look, all the people that are in this industry that that inspired me are long gone, right? They are all buried they are all buried in the ground. I am like a, a student of the old school, the Eugene Schwartz, the David Ogilvie, you know, the, the the real old school titans of of industry. There's no one that I, I really look at, you know, as an agency today that I'm like, wow, they're doing like phenomenal work and keep me motivated. I think that the biggest inspiration that I seek as by and large across the board is this anyone that has the ability to be able to make something out of nothing. They're always been the people and the stories that have fascinated me is that people that come from like, you know, adverse situations and somehow in spite of all those things, still able to go out there and, and make it happen. And they're the people that I look to, to, to basically draw inspiration from. And it's not just the people that have reached like success in one field of their life. Like it's easy to look at like someone that's just good at copywriting or a good ad agency or someone that's made a lot of money, but then the other aspects of their life are in shambles. I try to look for people that are well-balanced and that are polymaths and have lots of different interesting parts of their life that are intertwined to make them a more well-balanced individual. Yes, that's right. It's not just about business success. It's about living the life that you want to live, you know? And I, I agree with you there that there are some, you know, as you say, David Ogilvy, you know, like an industry giant in terms of advertising creativity, but that's just how you actually um, bring value back into your own local communities as well. All those things are really important. I think um, it's not just about hustling and, and earning money. It's about how you add value to everyone around you. And, and as a father, as a husband, as a mother, as a daughter, as a, as a neighbor, you know, all of those things are really valuable too. So I appreciate that perspective because 
you don't hear that often, right? When we talk about people, we inspire us. We just want to see the keynote speakers. It's a shame that you don't do keynote speaking, Sabri, because you're an amazing wordsmith. But I've got one last question. One last question. Um, from what I've gathered from your ads, you've got, in your office, you've got this big wall with all of these uh, like studio records and they look like awards, but what are, what's that all about? That's millionaires row. Millionaires um, that's, row. that's, that's all the millionaires that we've been able to, to create to date where we're, we're sitting at, at, at 86 millionaires that we've created from scratch. And the last time that we did the count on, on revenue, you know, we were, we were kind of at $1.33 billion in reported client revenue We're we're about to release our stats soon and they will dwarf those numbers. But yeah, the, the ones that really mean a lot to me is, you know, I believe that like business is a big vehicle to drive change in the world. And, you know, I think that the way that we solve that problem for our clients and seeing the impact that they can have when we move into a business and we know the few levers to move within that business to take that entrepreneur from struggling to make payroll and is like thinking, how am I going to pay rent and is stressed out of their mind up at night, tossing and turning, like searching for answers to their problems at 3am in the morning and being able to go in there and transform that person and transform their life and seeing the material difference that that has on them, on their well-being, on their immediate family, on their extended family, and on the greater society that that they communicate and reflect with to what is possible, right? Um, and I think that if you use vehicle, if you use business as a vehicle for change, you can you can make a lot of good, and you can you can do a lot of meaningful things. So for them, they're they're little tokens for for my team to remember. Like, hey, like the work that you do every day, whether it's writing an ad, it's creating a landing page, it's not like just from some faceless corporation. It's like you're literally like this landing page has the ability to change somebody's life. Um, and we we like to celebrate all the small wins. We've got a gong in the office that we hit every time a new client comes on board. We've got a cowbell that we ring when our client gets their first sale or their first lead. Um, and then, you know, we we like to, you know, we, we'll get a plaque for them, for their for the client's office or their home. Um, and then we'll get one for us so we can continue to celebrate those wins along the way. That's a nice touch. I like that. It really humanizes the work that you do, seeing those people find success and the growth you're able to generate for them as well. So that's that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. But so where can we find you on the web? Where can we connect with you outside of being chased by YouTube ads? Um, where can we find you? Yeah, I usually say, don't worry, I will find you. But, <laughs> uh, no, no, you can, you can, um, yeah, you can any anywhere at Subri Subi. You know, that the, there's only one of me floating around the internet. I have a very unique name, so yeah, I, I'm pretty much everywhere on all, all socials. Yeah, we'll definitely go check them out. Uh, so we interview people um, regularly, people like Sabri who are thinking very differently about his industry and growing and driving so much value for his customers. And so we, we interview people like Sabri all the time at the martechweekly.com and on the Making Sense of Martech podcast. So if you'd like to subscribe, you can head to the martechweekly.com. Thanks for joining me, Sabri. No problems. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it.